You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the Rand Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from Rand's latest research and commentary. It's July 15th. Safer firearm storage practices could help reduce gun deaths in the U.S. But what do we know about how Americans currently store their firearms? What influences their storage practices? And what is actually considered safe gun storage? A new analysis from RAND's Gun Policy in America initiative provides insights into these questions. Here's an overview of the findings from our national and statewide surveys. To date, most evidence suggests that about half of American gun owners store their firearms locked and one-third store all of their firearms locked and unloaded. The greatest influence on individual storage practices is how people perceive risk and protection related to their guns. Those with more guns and those with only handguns are less likely to store firearms as recommended, and those in homes with children under 18 are more likely to store them as recommended. Our surveys also revealed that there is disagreement between how accessible parents think their firearms are and how quickly their children report that they could access those firearms. There is some evidence that interventions such as counseling, communication campaigns, or safety trainings are effective at changing gun owners' storage practices. But simply distributing storage devices might be the most effective. Overall, experts agree that guns should be stored locked and unloaded and that ammunition should be stored separately. If more personally owned firearms are stored as experts recommend, it could help prevent unintentional firearm deaths, injuries among children, and suicides. But more evidence is needed to better understand how to improve firearm storage practices. RAND's Gun Policy in America initiative seeks to establish a shared set of facts that will improve public discussions and support the development of fair and effective gun policies. To read the complete essay about our analysis on firearm storage and see other findings from the initiative, visit www.rand.org slash gun policy. The Buffalo supermarket shooting that killed 10 black Americans earlier this year thrust the idea of replacement theory into the public consciousness. The shooter believed that an increasingly diverse society was forever altering what, in his mind, constituted a real or true American, and that this increasing diversity will ultimately replace the white race. Unfortunately, he is far from alone in this line of thinking, says Rand's Douglas Young. Replacement theory is, quote, woven into the very fabric of American society. After the Buffalo Massacre, much of the conversation rightly focused on Black and Hispanic communities as the intended targets. But this conversation could also be expanded to include Asian Americans, which have often been left out of national discussions about race and racism, even though Asian Americans have been a consistent target of violence and hate crimes. After the Atlanta spa shootings in March 2021, in which eight people were killed, including six Asian women, Young and Rand colleagues conducted interviews with Asian American community leaders. The interviewees emphasized the need to combat the ideologies behind such attacks, including replacement theory. 
One way to do this is to embrace a more inclusive vision of American society by building coalitions across racial and ethnic communities, forging connections between communities and government, and increasing representation in positions of power. In other words, to ultimately reject the zero-sum thinking of replacement theory, which is tearing Americans apart, we have to do the opposite, Young says. Come together to fight it. Fighting and bloodshed continues in Ukraine. Just yesterday, at least 21 people were killed in a Russian strike on an office building in central Ukraine. It appears that neither side will achieve a decisive military victory. And even if there is an agreement to end the war, current politics between the two countries, not to mention centuries of confrontation, don't suggest a lasting peace. Rand's Clint Reach recently wrote about the seemingly intractable political grievances at the heart of the conflict. First, consider Ukraine's ambitions to be a formal, integrated part of the West. Given the sacrifice and bloodshed due to Russia's war, Kyiv is unlikely to give up on that vision, regardless of whatever settlement might be agreed to under duress. If Ukraine were to accede to Moscow's demands on remaining neutral or hosting foreign troops, the Ukrainian government and population would become even more anti-Russian than before the invasion. Ukraine likely would continue to align with the West, and many European countries in the United States likely would attempt to counter Russian influence by supporting that move in every respect possible. For Russia, the goals of its invasion go beyond keeping Ukraine out of NATO. Ultimately, Moscow wants to secure its influence in Ukraine for the long term and establish a friendly Ukrainian government that will pursue closer relations with Russia. And remember that the Kremlin has framed this invasion to the Russian people as a war against Nazism. Propaganda like this could make a compromise agreement with the current government in Kyiv unpopular, particularly among Russia's national security community. And on top of this, there is a strain of thinking in Russia that any deal with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky would be devastating for Russia as a great power. According to Reach, a lasting resolution will come only when one capital accepts the vision of the other. Either Moscow will consolidate a genuinely Russia-friendly regime in Kyiv, or there will be a different regime in Moscow that does not see Ukraine's integration with the West as a threat. In 2017, after the U.S.-led battle for Raqqa, the Islamic State's de facto capital at that time, the scene was apocalyptic. Dust, death, and rubble. As many as 80% of the buildings were deemed uninhabitable, and several thousand civilians who had survived months of shelling and street fighting had nowhere to go for safe drinking water within the wreckage. Researchers from RAND spent months analyzing the battle and examining what the United States could have done better to protect civilians from the harms of war. They interviewed dozens of people involved in the battle and its aftermath, from commanders to planners and pilots to humanitarian aid workers and journalists. They also reviewed thousands of pages of after-action reports, civilian casualty assessments, and strike logs. They found that military leaders too often lacked a complete picture of conditions on the ground, too often waved off reports of civilian casualties, and too rarely learned any lessons from strikes gone wrong. 
Raqqa may have been a victory, but it was also a smoldering monument to how much more the military could do to protect civilians. So what are the lessons learned from the tragic scene in Raqqa? The RAND report provides a series of recommendations. To start, the military needs better data to effectively learn from its mistakes and provide accountability to victims. To achieve this, the DOD could be more open to working with outside organizations on the ground to validate reports of civilian casualties. It could also overhaul how it analyzes, collects, and stores those reports. And more generally, the Pentagon needs people within each command whose sole job is to worry about civilian casualties. Additionally, a center of excellence could be responsible for pulling together expertise and data on preventing civilian harm, conducting research, and disseminating the lessons learned across the force. Earlier this year, partly in response to Rand's findings, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said that the United States has a, quote, strategic and moral imperative to do better when it comes to preventing civilian casualties. Without improvements, the horrors seen and experienced by the people of Raqqa may be repeated. For years, news headlines in the United Kingdom have warned of a looming language crisis. Without greater investment in teaching foreign languages, the UK could lose not just business opportunities, but cultural awareness in a globalized world. A recent study conducted by researchers at RAND Europe bore out those concerns. It found that, for international business, not speaking a common language acted as a kind of tax. It made doing business more difficult, more expensive, and less attractive. So, what would happen if the United Kingdom cut that tax by upping its investments in foreign language education? The study results, produced through a mathematical model of trade flows across countries, were eye-opening. If 10% more secondary students learned to speak Arabic well enough to use it in a business meeting, the economic gains would add up to around 928 million British pounds by 2050. 10% more Mandarin speakers would add another 717 million. French would be worth 673 million, and Spanish 631 million pounds. And these numbers only account for direct trade, increased exports, and greater demand for British services. There are other economic benefits too. Consumers would find more products on store shelves with lower prices. Workers would also likely find it easier to land a good-paying job. When the researchers added in those benefits, they found that greater fluency in those four languages, Arabic, Mandarin, French, or Spanish, would boost the UK economy by at least £43 billion through the year 2050. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. For more on today's episode, check the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. We'll see you next week.